I want to take you back for a moment to the summer of 2015. You'll remember that so many Republican senators and governors decided they wanted to run for president. There was a number, right? And it was interesting. And then it was even more interesting when businesswoman Carly Fiorina threw her hat in the ring. But when Donald Trump descended the Trump Tower and announced that he was going to run for the Republican primary, I mean, it was a joke. I mean, what, was this a publicity stunt or what? What was this? Comedians had a lot of mileage out of that one. And then uh, they began to campaign, and the odds were put at 25 to 1 that he had any chance, and that was generous. But then through that year, he stunned the nation when he captured the Republican nomination. And as they moved through those months that followed into the fall, by November, Hillary was still a 5 to 1 favorite to win the election. And when the results started pouring in that night, and it soon became apparent that Donald Trump was going to be the next president, the nation, well, to say the nation was surprised would be an understatement. The nation was stunned. And you saw it in the faces of those who were reporting on the election. Some were delighted, and they were just gleeful about it. Others were mourning, and there were tears that were shed um, in live coverage because people were just devastated by that result. And some of you are thinking, where's the preacher going with this one? <laughs> well, I'm neither here to gloat nor to mourn about the outcome of the election because elections come and go, and presidents come and go, but the kingdom of God goes on from here to eternity. And as we move toward Easter, I want to share a series of messages called The Great Surprise. And of course, the great surprise was the resurrection. But I want you to see, before we get there, that there were a lot of surprises in the life and the ministry of Jesus. Some that I think sometimes, looking back, we don't realize what a tremendous surprise these things were. And in particular, I want us to begin this series with the surprise of the kingdom, because it stunned a nation. And the reason I mention a contemporary example of an election that surprised the nation, I think that just gives us a hint of the surprise that occurred to the nation of Israel when they heard this offer of the kingdom and began to understand the nature of the kingdom that was being offered to them. Some responded with joy and gladness, others with hostility and hatred. So there's just two major points in this message about this surprise, and they're in your outline. Here's the first. Jesus surprised the nation because they expected a different kind of kingdom. I mean, the people of Israel, they knew their history. They knew that they had a king named Saul, who was their first king. This Saul had been disobedient, and so the kingdom was given to David, who expanded the kingdom greatly, but his son Solomon, I mean, when he became king, he had so much wisdom, and he expanded it beyond what it had ever been before, and it was a glorious kingdom. Those were the glory days of Israel. Now, after Solomon 
the kingdom was divided, north and south, and there were a succession of kings in both, all evil in the north, mostly all wicked in the south, but eventually, by the 6th century B.C., the kingdom was lost. They had drifted from God, and God brought judgment in the form of the Babylonians who came in, uh, invaded the land, they destroyed the city and the temple, Many people were killed, others were exiled to Babylon, and Babylon ruled until Persia took over and then ruled over the remaining people that were in exile as well as those in the land. And after Persia, it was Greece, and then it was Rome who ruled the people of Israel. And in the day of Jesus, they were under the iron heel of Rome. They were oppressed. There were soldiers everywhere. And the people of Israel longed for a king and the kingdom. And so they had scripture to back them up on this. Many prophets had spoken of a coming kingdom. Zechariah is just one example who hundreds of years earlier had prophesied. And the Lord will bring or will be a king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. And Israel would be the center. And how would God establish this kingdom? Well, what were they to think? Of course they thought that the king that would be sent would be a conquering king. And that he would expand his territory by conquest. That he would come, he would destroy the Gentiles who were worshiping idols. And he would even destroy the Jews among them who were sinners and would welcome the righteous of Israel into his kingdom, this earthly kingdom. That's what most people in the time of Jesus believed. So when a baby was born in Bethlehem, not too many people noticed, and then 30 years later, when John comes, and he begins to preach on the other side of the Jordan River in the wilderness, and people were stirred, and the nation came out to hear what he had to say, he said... Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus comes to him. Jesus is baptized. He spends 40 days in the wilderness, tempted by the devil, and then he launches his ministry. And what does he say? Matthew chapter 4, 17 records it. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Do you know he spoke a lot about the kingdom? Do you realize that in the, in the Gospels, in the four Gospels, he mentioned the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God 126 times. In Matthew alone, Jesus mentioned it 55 times. That was what the message was all about. But how much do we really understand about it? The nation of Israel missed it because they had a different kingdom in mind. They didn't understand the nature of his kingdom. But I think over 2,000 years later, we're still a bit confused about what Jesus meant when he was offering the kingdom. Dallas Willard has written a lot of interesting and amazing books, actually. One of them is called The Divine Conspiracy. And in it, he references the kingdom. And he has a quote from a professor at the University of Aberdeen and uh, Dr. Howard Marshall. And uh, Marshall said this, 
During the past 16 years, I can recollect only two occasions on which I have heard sermons specifically devoted to the theme of the kingdom of God. I find this silence rather surprising because it is universally agreed by New Testament scholars that the central theme of the teaching of Jesus was the kingdom of God. Peter Wagner said this, I cannot help wondering out loud why I haven't heard more about the kingdom in the 30 years I've been a Christian. I certainly read about it enough in the Bible, but I honestly cannot remember any pastor whose ministry I have been under actually preaching a sermon on the kingdom of God. As I rummage through my own sermon barrel, I now realize that I myself have never preached a sermon on the kingdom. Where has the kingdom been? Good question, right? When you pray the Lord's Prayer and you say, whatever version you use, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. What kind of a kingdom are you praying for? What does that mean? I think we may have different understandings and thoughts about that, but it's important to understand that the kingdom of God means the supreme reign of God. Wherever it is, it's God's rule or God's reign. In fact, Dallas Willard expressed it this way, God's kingdom or rule is the range of his effective will where what he wants done is done. Now, he could just declare it, right? He's God. But he's given free will to people. And so his kingdom reigns where people give him rule in their lives and in their circumstances. It's true of individuals, it's true of cities, and it's true of nations and ultimately the world. Well, many in the nation of Israel in Jesus' day believed that if there was a kingdom to be had, they were the ones that would be welcomed into it because after all, they were the chosen people. It was their right. They were entitled to this kingdom that God would usher in. But when Jesus began to speak and preach about the kingdom, he surprised and he angered many of them because of the way he looked to Gentiles. One of them in particular was a Roman soldier, a centurion, who came to Jesus and said, my servant is paralyzed and he's being tormented badly. Would you please heal him? Jesus offered to go. You remember, and the centurion said, you don't even need to come. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. Jesus marveled at that. And he said, I haven't seen that kind of faith in all of Israel. And then he spoke to the crowd there and he said, I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, this kingdom that he was offering was bigger than the nation of Israel. It would include all people of faith that would come to him. Now Jesus, in Matthew chapter 13, it's recorded a series of stories or parables that he told, and they were about the kingdom of heaven. He said a king, the kingdom of heaven is like a sower who went out to scatter seed and it fell on the road, it fell among rocky places, it fell uh, in thorny places in, in the good soil. And there were different responses. Some grew and some didn't grow. That's how it would be in the kingdom. When the word of God was thrown out there, some would respond different than others. 
He also said the kingdom was like a sower who went out and sowed seed, good seed, but at nighttime the enemy came and sowed weed seed among it. And it all grew up together, and it wasn't until the harvest that you could tell the difference and separate them. And so it would be in the kingdom. that There would be those who would think they would be in the kingdom, or it looked like they were, but at the end of the age, they weren't true believers at all. He said the kingdom of heaven was like a woman who put some yeast or leaven into meal, and it grew. But it was rather invisible and grew in secret. And so it would be with much of the kingdom. He also said in those stories that the kingdom was like a man who found a treasure in a field. And he went and he did all that he could to purchase the field so that he might have the treasure. Or correspondingly, a merchant who finally found the pearl of great price. Sold everything he had to get that pearl. Showing the value of the kingdom. Now, many people who listened to these stories, they didn't get it. Neither did the disciples. And so they asked Jesus, could you explain this to us? And he did. And then he said something very interesting. Jesus answered them, to you it has been given or granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. So these parables about the kingdom were to reveal it to those who had open hearts, but to conceal it from those who really weren't interested in the kingdom. This mystery, this unveiling of the kingdom was for those who would believe. And that's who it was available to then, and that's who it's available to now. In fact, Jesus said to his disciples, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have to have the faith of a child to believe and receive this kingdom. A ruler of the Jews, a, a rabbi, came to Jesus by night. You remember his name, Nicodemus. And uh, he wanted to know about Jesus' teaching. And Jesus told this teacher of Israel, unless you're born again, you'll not see the kingdom of God. Wouldn't he be in because he's a rabbi and a teacher? No, he'd need to be born spiritually and have a new heart given to him by the Lord. Well, when the nation's leaders, in particular the religious leaders, heard this, they weren't open to it at all. The Pharisees, the major religious party uh, in terms of giving themselves to the law, they felt they were already righteous. So they had no need of any righteousness he would offer. The Sadducees, they had the wealth. They were the chief priests in those days, and, and they had comfort, and they had no need for what Jesus was offering. And so they didn't respond to his offer of the kingdom with a welcome heart at all, but resisted it and doubled down and became insulted by this offer. So Jesus one day tells them a story. It's a parable. And uh, it was a parable about a vineyard. Now, interestingly... They would have understood that uh, this was about the nation of Israel. Because if you look in the fifth chapter of uh, Isaiah or in Psalm 80, God says that Israel is his vineyard and uh, that he expects it to produce good fruit. Jesus just extends the parable. 
And he says, there was a master who had a vineyard, and uh, he went away into a far country, and he sent one of his servants to collect the produce from the vineyard, but they rejected that servant. And he sent one after another, and then finally he sent his son, and they said, let's kill the son, and we'll take the vineyard for ourselves. Well, they got it immediately. They understood that those servants were the prophets who came to Israel saying God wanted them to live righteously and finally the son would be Christ himself who was speaking to them and they were insulted by that. In fact, Jesus then told them something that really insulted them. He said, truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. Think of that. How stunning was that? Here were the religious leaders of Israel, and Jesus is telling them that the tax collectors, the traitors to Israel, who served the Romans, and the prostitutes would get into the kingdom sooner than them. That was kind of the pinnacle of the rejection of Christ as Messiah, and that kind of formulated what their plans would be from that point on. And so... Jesus told them that uh, this vineyard would be taken away from them and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And of course, that would be the church, the believers, the true believers in the church from among the Jews and the Gentiles who would comprise the kingdom of God. It would be the sphere of God's reign in the life of individuals, families, and communities who would turn to the Lord. But the fascinating thing is that the poor, the, the isolated or marginalized, the despised among the nations were the ones that welcomed this message of the kingdom, while the religious saw no need for it and rejected it. Sermon on the Mount, recorded in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, and also in Luke chapter 6. You could call that the platform of the kingdom, where Jesus talks about how blessed are the people who may be poor now, may be well, not fed well now, who may be uncomfortable now, who may be persecuted now, when they're hopeless, the kingdom's available to them right now. But those who feel they're satisfied, comfortable, wealthy, well-fed, and have no thought or care for others, those are the ones that will have a hard time getting into the kingdom. They weren't interested. They were surprised by it because they expected a different kind of kingdom. Secondly, Jesus surprised the nation because they expected a different kind of king. In the 1700s, the Wesley brothers rocked England and America. And they were preachers and evangelists, and uh, they would ride circuits, you know, John Wesley in particular, on his horse, preaching the gospel and forming communities of faith. But his brother Charles in particular was a gifted songwriter. He wrote over 10,000 hymns. We still sing a number of them. And one of them is, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. And I've asked Lisette to lead us in this, and I want you to reflect on the words as you join with her in this song about this expected Jesus that was to come. Expected Jesus. 
Well, this Messiah, this coming king, would be Israel's consolation, but they wouldn't recognize it immediately because most of them weren't expecting this long-awaited Jesus. They were looking for a different kind of a king. They were looking for a warrior king, a potentate, who would expand the territory and set up an earthly kingdom to evict the Romans and finally establish Israel as a glorious kingdom once again. Well, Jesus' popularity grew among the common people for sure because they heard his message gladly and they heard his teaching as no one had taught them before and they witnessed his miracles. And then one day, they'd been on a hillside for about three days and Jesus had been teaching them and they'd run out of food and, and the disciples told Jesus, send them away so they can go get something to eat. And Jesus said, no, you feed them. And remember what they found, one little boy with five loaves and two fishes, and Jesus prayed over it, blessed it, and it fed the multitude. And the multitude's response, this is him. This must be the prophet that was spoken of. This is the king who was to come, and they intended to make him king. So in John chapter 6, we read, so Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. He had a different kind of kingdom in mind. He was a different kind of king than they imagined. And so, as he continued to grow in popularity with the common people, the religious leaders' hostility towards him intensified. And finally, after about three and a half years of ministry, he tells his disciples they're going up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast, one of the seven Jewish feasts. Well, the, the disciples knew this could be disastrous because they knew of the plots of the religious leaders to get rid of Jesus. But they followed him up to Jerusalem, and he comes into the city, and we'll talk about this in a few weeks on Palm Sunday, but I want you to notice how this relates to the king and the kingdom. It says, On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him, who began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Well, this crowd believed that he was the king. They were ready to establish the earthly kingdom, to worship him and to enthrone him. But the religious leaders, they were ready to see him crucified. And so they worked out a deal with Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him, and then they held their mock trials, several mock trials, and uh, condemned him and turned him over to the Roman governor, Pilate, 
who was hated by the Jews, but they were willing to have him do their dirty work. And so Jesus is being interrogated by Pilate, and John says this in chapter 18, Therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And later, in John 19, now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, and Pilate said to the Jews, Behold your king. So they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. That is amazing. That the chief priests of Israel, the leaders of their religion, who were supposed to be honoring God, said, We have no king but Caesar. This was as low as they would ever go. They were rejecting the king and the kingdom because they were presently comfortable. They were satisfied with their lot in life. They were wealthy, and certainly they were well-fed. And they'd read the scriptures about this coming king. And by the way, many of those scriptures did come talk about Jesus coming as a conquering king, the Messiah who would rule on the earth. But they were ignoring other scriptures that spoke of him coming as a suffering servant. Both were in the prophets, but one spoke of the first coming, the other of the second coming. And they wanted this conquering king and that kind of a kingdom, so those are the scriptures they paid attention to, and they conveniently ignored scriptures like Psalm 22 or Isaiah 53 that talked about him coming as a suffering servant who would die for the sins of the people. They looked for the kind of king they desired and rejected the one they weren't expecting. Now, it's ironic that the only kind of people who welcomed this king were the sinners, the prostitutes, tax gatherers, the common people, those who re recognized that they needed a savior. Anyone who considered themselves presently righteous saw no need for this king. They wanted one to come and judge and defeat their enemies. So here's the bottom line. The kingdom, a surprising threat to some, is to others a welcome surprise. That was true in Jesus' day, and it's still true today. Because Jesus comes and offers a kingdom to each of us, and if we're comfortable where we're at, if our quest is for getting as much out of this life as we possibly can, and using it for ourselves, we're threatened by him and his claim on our lives and his desires to direct our lives. He's a threat. But if, on the other hand, we recognize that there's more to life than this life, and that he offers forgiveness to me, a sin sinner, then he's a welcome surprise. And I think each of us has to decide, is Jesus to me and his offer a threat or a welcome surprise? Let's go back to the Lord's Prayer for just a moment. When you pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. 
you're really praying, Thy will be done in my heart, in my life, in my marriage, in my family, in this community, in our state and nation and world. And you're not only praying that it will come to pass, that his rule or reign will take place, but that we'll cooperate with him in seeing this come to pass by seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, living for him. We are brought into this kingdom by faith, but now we're committing ourselves to living by faith and for his purpose and kingdom. In Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, I mean, we know the end of the story because John the Apostle writes about this vision that he's given, and uh, he sees in his vision something at the end of the age. Let me read it to you. It says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Right now, he reigns where he's allowed to reign. It's our choice. We can invite him to reign in our lives. We can give him authority, and then he becomes our king, and we live in his kingdom. But one day, at the end of the age, it's all going to be come the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ and he will reign forever and ever and I think that's beautifully expressed in the second verse of Charles Wesley's hymn and I'm going to ask Lisette to come and lead us in that and I want you to reflect on the words especially that relate to the king and his kingdom born thy bow with me for prayer. Lord, we this morning open our hearts to you. I pray that each of us will open our hearts to you and realize that it is by your sufficient merit, by your righteousness, and by your sacrifice that we are made righteous and that we have entrance into your kingdom. And I pray also, Lord, that we'll not only receive with gladness your kingdom, recognizing our desperate need for it, but that we'll choose to live in your kingdom as your people, to allow you not only to reign in our lives, in our families, but to commit ourselves to bringing your reign into our communities and into this state, nation, and even world as we look to you in prayer and in commitment. Help us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.